Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 30. Last week, I covered the town and valley of Jezreel, since it was mentioned as part of the territory assigned to Issachar. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in that part of the text and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. Zebulun's territory includes what's becoming the usual list of places that aren't referenced anywhere else in the text, and little to nothing is known from the outside record. Though the first couple of places I'm covering in this episode fit neatly into the little to nothing known, they are interesting for their own reasons. So I'll give each just a minute or two, maybe a little longer. First up is Shunil. This was a small village said to have been in Issachar's territory. Like most places assigned to that tribe, it was near the Jezreel Valley. It was also north of Mount Gilboa. When the Philistines fought King Saul in 1 Samuel 28, they encamped near the city. It was also the hometown of Abishag, who was King David's companion when he was old. And honestly, that's a purposely mild way of phrasing who she was. The text gives more detail, but I'll leave that alone. It can be found in 1 Kings 1, the very first paragraph in that book. You should really read your Bible, people. It's more interesting than you think. But that also isn't why I'm mentioning the town. That reason can be found in 2 Kings 4. It's a rather long story, so I'll condense and paraphrase. The prophet Elisha was passing through Shunem where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat with her and her husband. He appreciated the hospitality and would eat there every time he was in the town, meaning in Shuno. The woman recognized he was a man of God and set him up with his own bedroom, just for when he was visiting. During one of these visits, Elisha had his personal servant summon the woman. Before she gets there, They exchange ideas about how to reward the woman for all that she had done for Elisha. Elisha finds out she has no son, and when she arrives, he tells her that she will bear a son within the year. She thinks he's kidding, but in due time, she does bear a male heir. When the child was older, but we're not told how much older, but the son is still referred to as a child. When he was older, He was with his father among the reapers, meaning the farmhands harvesting the grain, and he gets hurt so badly that a few hours later, he dies in his mother's arms. This occurred when Elisha was not in town. The mother laid the dead child on Elisha's bed and left the room, closing the door behind her. She then rode a donkey in search of the prophet with a servant apparently walking or running while leading the burrow towards Mount Carmel. Elisha sees them approaching and recognizes the Shumanite woman. As he sees her, he knows something must be wrong, so he sends his servant, a man named Gehazi, to ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is the child all right? She answered, It is all right. The woman finally makes it to Elisha, grabbing his feet, but Gehazi tries to push her away. Elisha intervenes, knowing something was wrong, but not what exactly. She tells Elisha, Did I ask for a son? 
Elisha then directs his servant to run to her house without delay and lay his staff on the dead child's face. Gehazi does as he's told, with the woman and Elisha following some distance behind. The servant eventually makes it to the house and did as Elisha directed, but to no avail, as the child remains silent and without any sign of life. Gehazi heads back to Elisha, and when they meet up, he tells the prophet that the child has not awakened. Elisha finally makes it to the house, finding the child exactly as Gehazi had described. He then went in the room, which was his room when he was staying in the woman's house, and saw the child laying on the bed. He closed the door, making it just himself and the dead child in the room. Elisha got up on the bed, touching the child. Before long, the child's flesh became warm. Soon after that, the child sneezed seven times, then opened his eyes. Elisha had Gay's eye call for the Shumanite woman, who fell at his feet in thanks. This is one of the longest passages I've quoted in the podcast, and simply because it's about all that's known about Shunem. In fact, other than the mentions in Joshua concerning the allocation of land and David's friend, the city is found nowhere else in the Bible. The Shumanite woman did come up again, a few chapters later when Elisha told her to leave her land and go elsewhere as a famine was a-coming, one that would last for seven years. She did as she was advised and settled in the land of the Philistines. Apparently, the famine was very local, as the Philistines weren't that far away. After the seven years passes, she came back, but her land had been lost, so she made an appeal to the king for restoration. Luckily for her, the king was talking to the one and only Gehazi, asking him to tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. At the same time that Elisha's servant was telling the king how Elisha had restored a dead child to life, the woman whose son he had revived appealed to the king for her house and her land. Timing is everything. The king questioned the woman, and she told him how everything had gone down, at least seven years, probably more, before. The king then had all of her land restored to her. But not just that. He also gave her all the revenue of the fields from the day that she left the land until that day. And that's the biblical record, and the reason I'm covering it. Yet another biblical story that's rarely told. There's more detail in the text, but I had to really whittle it down and keep it clean. In the outside record, Shunem is listed as a town conquered by the Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III, meaning he took it sometime between 1479 and 1425 BC. This reference was in the Armana letters and aligns with the history of several other places I've recently covered. The takeaway from that is that the Egyptians conquered many places in Canaan during that period which was also when the Israelites were living among the Egyptians after Jacob and before the Exodus. The city was also mentioned in the records of Shoshek I, who ruled between 943 and 922 BC, placing it during the reign of Solomon and when the kingdom of Israel was split. What this means is not only did the city really exist, but it was prominent enough to be mentioned in the records of a foreign country. 
Now, and because I referenced Elisha earlier, know that he's thought to have been a prominent prophet in Israel between about 892 and 832 BC, making it well after both of the Egyptian records. Finally, Shunem may have been located at the site of the modern village of Sulam. Archaeological digs in this city show it was occupied in the period, but there's been no conclusive evidence that the two are the same place. But, since there is the potential connection, and we may never go this way again, I'll take a couple of minutes to cover that city. Sulam is a sparsely populated village in the northeastern portion of the modern country of Israel. It's located on a tell with a nearby spring. A pair of geographic features that's becoming common with the places I'm covering in this part of the text. So, no surprise there. The spring was noted as late as 1872, as still bringing forth clear water. This place is thought to be the same city that was mentioned in the 14th century BC Egyptian Amarna letters, which is partly why it's also believed to be the same place as that mentioned in the Old Testament, including in Joshua. That cuneiform correspondence lists the city as one of several cities conquered by the Canaanite warlord Labayu in the Dothan and southern Jezreel valleys. This Labayu may be one and the same as Abimelech found in Judges 9. There have been archaeological excavations at the site with uncovered artifacts dating to the Bronze Age, also aligning with Joshua. The artifacts and limited ruins indicate the village has been repeatedly destroyed and rebuilt. Also not surprising. As for these artifacts, they are the usual, meaning pottery, with a few other pieces. And the fragments are from all throughout the various eras. There were also early and late tombs, later churches, and even places that seemed to be defensive hiding positions, which, if you think about it, isn't that surprising. It seems people in the Old Testament were always hiding from something. David from Saul, the woman in Jericho hiding the spies, Obadiah taking 100 prophets and hiding them by fifties in a cave. Hiding spots in Sulam were par for the course. What's less usual about the finds in Sulam is that they show occupation beginning in the early Bronze Age and rather continuously through the Ottomans well into the 19th century. There is a sector of the town, a bit north of the spring, that was abandoned between about the 13th and 19th centuries, with no real indication why this occurred. The 4th and 5th century AD Roman writers Eusebius and Jerome mentioned the city was about 5 Roman miles from Tabor, making it about 4.6 statute miles seven and a half kilometers from that city. This period also yielded artifacts of pottery pieces, coins, animal bones, and marble fragments. From the Byzantine period was a coin that was minted between 640 and 660 AD and appears to bear the image of the Eastern Empire's emperor, Constance II. I'll skip over the little that's known about the early Muslim period, as it's really no different than that seen in other cities in the region. From either the late Crusader period or early Second Muslim period is a thick burnt layer, 
so much burnt material and ashes that it likely wasn't from a single event, but more probably from prolonged activity. It was next to a collapsed stone masonry wall, maybe from a kiln or oven. Fast-forwarding a little, and the 16th century Ottoman tax records show that agricultural produce, which included wheat, barley, summer crops, goats, and beehives, were taxed at a fixed 25%. I don't know if that was on their value or production. I'm assuming production. The city would eventually become part of the British Mandate, then Israel, all following the same general trend I've mentioned numerous times. And that's Shunem, moving along. Next up is the city of Ebez, also in the territory of Issachar. In ancient Hebrew, its name translates to the color white, or maybe the metal tin, which, if you squint enough, the metal may sometimes appear white, but it usually has a yellow hue. Like most places found in Issachar, it was probably in the Jezreel Valley, but the exact location has been lost over time. The only reason I'm covering it is that the city was mentioned on a facade of the mortuary temple of Ramses III, which will allow me to point something out. This place, Ebes, is only mentioned in this single location in the entirety of the Bible and in the solitary Egyptian record. But, since it was found in two independent places, the general conclusion is that it did exist. If one of those were missing, and let's just say that when Joshua divided up the territory, he didn't include this city on the list, then we'd be less certain of its existence. The same goes for whichever Egyptian decided to carve it into Ramses' tomb. But that wouldn't change the fact that it did exist. Just think of that when you suffer naysayers. And that's it for Ebbas. The last place I'm covering from Issachar is the city of Beth Shemesh, and it literally translates as the House of Shemesh, and sometimes modernly rendered as Beit Shemesh. As for the second part of the name, it refers to the sun, as in our home star. So, the House of the Sun. Some think this translation of Beth is more accurately rendered as temple, maybe the Temple of the Sun in this case referring to the Canaanite sun goddess of Shapash, who is occasionally called Shemesh. What all of this points to is that before the Israelites conquered the territory from the Canaanites, the Canaanites worshipped this female sun deity in the town, a change of pace from the more common local version of Baal. The location of this town with name has been lost. And I say this one, as there were at least two other places with the same name in Israel, and another in Egypt. I'll get to one of the other ones in Israel in a minute. The one in Egypt is better known by its Greek name, Heliopolis, also referring to the sun. And since I'm on Egypt, this Beth Shemesh, the one in Joshua, the one allocated to the tribe of Issachar, may have been the one mentioned in the Amarna letters also mentioning its association with a sun deity. And that's all that's known about this version of Beth Shemesh. And since I'm on it, and to avoid further confusion, now's as good a time as any to cover the other town in Israel with the same name. 
The second one is on a tell, about 19 miles, 30 kilometers west of Jerusalem, which solidly places it in the modern country of Israel. Before the Israelites arrived back from the Exodus and wandering, and in the middle of the Bronze Age, it was a Canaanite town complete with a temple complex. This version was in the territory of Judah, on its border with Dan. Later in Joshua, in chapter 21, it would be named as a Levitical city. The third city with the name in Israel was located in Naphtali's territory. It's been lost to the passage of time, too. Back in the Bible, when the Philistines decided to return the Ark of the Covenant, after realizing it was a mistake to seize it, the first stop of the Ark was in Beth Shemesh. When it was brought there, it was placed on a stone, a rock that Samuel later recorded was still present in the city. The King James calls this rock the Great Stone of Abel. In both the NIV and New Revised Standard, it remains nameless. It was from this period, which was in the Iron Age, that the oldest iron workshop on the globe was uncovered in Beth Shemesh, a find which occurred in 2003. Also from the period were the only remnants of a fortified city with an advanced water system dating to the period of the early kingdom of Judah. Uncovered animal remains, dated to between the 12th and 11th centuries BC, are thought to show the typical Israelite diet, at least those that lived in this region, the hill country. Few pig bones were found in the city, though many more were found not far from it. Given the dietary restrictions of the Israelites, this likely shows that the city's residents were mostly Israelites, with a few non-adherents living there. Outside the city, many more swine bones were found. The swine remains in the city all date to before the 11th century BC, about the time the Israelites arrived back and may have conquered the place. Unfortunately, the dating isn't precise enough to know if they were before or after Joshua. Also found in the city was a circular stone seal, just over half an inch, about 15 millimeters in diameter. The seal was found on the ruins of the floor of a house in the city, and is dated to about the same period B.C. There is the thought that the figure of a man on the seal is that of Samson, but it's little more than speculation. The speculation is based on a few factors. These include the geographic vicinity to the area where Samson lived and the dating of the seal. The artifact also shows a man fighting a lion, a story associated with Samson. Maybe, but not certainly. Pottery from the period shows Israelite influences, along with trade with the neighboring Philistines, who weren't that far away. Despite all of this, it's proven impossible to determine the specific ethnicity of the inhabitants. In reality, it was likely similar to that of other cities in the region, proving to be a mix of Israelite, Canaanite, and Philistine. In 2 Kings, the city was where King Amaziah of Judea battled King Jehoash of Israel, a fight that occurred in the 8th century BC. In this battle... Amaziah rushed in and suffered a humiliating defeat. Because of his loss, he was captured and taken prisoner. Four hundred cubits of the wall of Jerusalem was broken down, 
The city, temple, and palace were looted, and prisoners were carried back to Samaria. Following the destruction of much of Judah by Sennacherib in 701 BC, the city was abandoned for a short period, but soon afterwards there appears to have been an attempt by a group of Judaites to resettle it. Evidence of this can be seen in the potential refurbishing of the water reservoir, probably occurring in the 7th century BC. This wasn't to last, as when the Babylonians came along in the early 580s BC, either the new Babylonian rulers or the leaders of the nearby Philistine city of Ekron put an end to any such work, having the reservoir sealed and covered. What this likely means is that the spring feeding the pool was capped, and the pool filled with stones and dirt. Without water, the city wasn't very habitable, though a few people remained. The spring would not be uncovered for over 2,000 years in 2004. The effect of this can be seen when the Jewish people returned from their Babylonian exile and resettled the region, but did not resettle Beth Shemesh. After their return from Babylon came the Persians, then Greeks, then Romans, who slowly morphed to the Byzantines. It was during the Roman, then Byzantine era that Christianity spread throughout the region. In Beth Shemesh, the result of this was the building, then nearly continual occupation of a monastery on the Tell. The ruins of this monastery were only uncovered in 2014. Within the rather large complex was a residential area, along with an industrial part that had both wine and olive presses. The ruins of buildings with two or three stories and notable mosaic floors were also uncovered. The compound was abandoned by the monks in the early Muslim period and was nearly immediately occupied by other residents. The excavation of the site was ongoing through at least 2017. The Muslims, Crusaders, and finally the Ottomans would occupy it in the usual periods for the region. Nothing all that remarkable there. As part of this, they would build fortifications, mosques, and all the usual buildings. Then the British mandate in the settlement of an Arab village. The Egyptians invaded as part of the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, with Israeli forces taking up positions not far away. In a fashion similar to the Crusader-slash-Muslim conflicts nearly a millennium before, but on a smaller scale and shorter timeline, over the next few months, Beth Shemesh would change hands several times. Eventually, the area would come to be completely controlled by the Israelis, and with the end of that conflict, Beth Shemesh was formally folded into the nation of Israel. Soon after this, a camp for Jewish refugees was established near the city. In this case, the refugees were from Bulgaria, followed soon afterwards by Jewish immigrants from Iran, Iraq, Romania, Morocco, and the Kurdish region of northern Iraq. They would construct a modern city at the site. As they did, the construction crews would frequently uncover ancient ruins and artifacts, such finds have included a mosaic floor, wineries, like those mentioned earlier, and other such discoveries. Many date to the period of the Hasmonean kings and further back, meaning a couple of decades before Christ and earlier. In many cases, these sites are preserved, or at a minimum dug up and catalogued. 
In the 1990s, the city saw a large inflow of new immigrants from the former Soviet Union, Ethiopia, and various English-speaking countries and regions including North America, the United Kingdom, South Africa, and Australia, turning it into a major center for Western Jewish immigrants, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue pressing through the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.